I was thinking about this and realized that all of us at one time or another have been ripped off, either by a smooth-talking salesman or by an ad on TV when we bought a gadget for $14.95, got one free, and when we tried to put it to use, we found out it wasn't even worth the $0.25 cents worth of plastic that it was made of. And we tend to get over those kinds of rip-offs. And we mumble something about burn me once and burn me twice and those kind of things. We've all said that. But when the rip-offs are personal and we get ripped up, either by verbal attacks or by something that's been done to us, it's another thing altogether. It's hard enough to deal with the consequences of our own missteps, our own miscalculations, maybe even our stupid mistakes, our gullibility, but it seems unbearable to suffer the consequences of something that wasn't our fault or that we feel like we didn't deserve. Remember what I taught you last week in Hebrew? Zelo ashmati. It's not my fault. And what's really difficult to endure is the kind of abuse or victimization that really gets personal. When someone slanders your reputation or pulls the economic rug out from under you, or, or even threatens your life. Or the types of abuse today that are targeting faithful Christians in our own country, the, the kind that is becoming more and more common in our American culture. The loss of a business and a livelihood, plus a $135,000 fine for refusing to bake a cake for a gay wedding. As the rights of certain groups are becoming more and more protected in our country, the faith of Christians is becoming more and more criminalized, literally. And Christians are more and more becoming the targets of mass shootings, even. I came across a report from 2012, which was the previous presidential election year, and I think that was part of the reason for issuing this report. And it was jointly issued by the Family Research Council and then the Texas-based Liberty Institute. And they offered a stern warning during the 2012 election season about where we we're headed as a country. And the report noted the key court cases concerning religious freedom. And they said that they had escalated, court cases being filed in court, had escalated to over 100 a month in our country. And as examples, they cited several court cases in 2012, including... A federal judge threatened incarceration to a high school valedictorian unless she removed references to Jesus from her graduation speech. City officials prohibited senior citizens from praying over their meals, listening to religious messages, or singing gospel songs at a senior activity center. A public school official physically lifted an elementary school student from his seat and reprimanded him in front of his classmates for praying over his lunch. Following U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs policies, a federal government official sought to censor a pastor's prayer, eliminating references to Jesus during a Memorial Day ceremony honoring veterans at a national cemetery. Public school officials prohibited students from handing out gifts because they contained religious messages. A public school official prevented a student from handing out flyers inviting her classmate to an event at her church. A public university's law school banned a Christian organization because it required its officers to adhere to a statement of faith that the university did not agree with. 
The U.S. Department of Justice argued before the Supreme Court that the federal government can tell churches and synagogues which pastors and rabbis it can hire and fire. The state of Texas, I can't believe this one, the state of Texas sought to approve and regulate what religious seminaries can teach. Through the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, the federal government is forcing religious organizations to provide insurance for both birth control and abortion-inducing drugs in direct violation of their religious beliefs. The U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs banned the mention of God from veterans' funerals, overriding the wishes of the deceased families. And a federal judge held that prayers before a state House of Representatives could be to Allah, but not to Jesus. That was 2012. And with all type of all, on top of all this kind of stuff, now we're watching the political circus that's being played out every night on our TV sets. And we ask, what has happened to our country? Is there anything we can do about it? What is our Christian responsibility in civic affairs and in the political process for which, at least in America, we're still blessed to participate? And when we look at how faithful Christians in the past have responded to the tyranny of civil government, it tends to raise more, raise more questions than it gives us answers. Because I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. What about Dietrich Bonhoeffer? The faithful pastor of the Confessing Church in Germany, who was one of the founders of the Confessing Church, because they as a church refused to be nationalized by the Nazi party, who lived out the biblical principles that he had written about in his own books on Christian ethics, and the cost of discipleship. And because of his involvement to assassinate Hitler, he was executed just two weeks before the war ended. What about Corrie Ten Boone and her family, who deceived the Nazis by hiding Jews in her home? What about the American Revolution and the founders of our great nation who were by and large Christians? What did the signers of the Declaration of Independence think of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 and following, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every institution, whether to a king or one in authority. Fear God, honor the king. It's very good reading to read what they thought about these and those kind of things. But as we come to this section of scripture this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2, I have to say right up front that we're probably going to raise more questions this morning than we're going to answer because we just need to lay the biblical framework in, in the context of what, what Peter is saying here. We must be very careful to lay the necessary groundwork from God's word about these matters because without laying the necessary groundwork, we run a greater risk of coming to faulty assumptions on these matters or a risk of coming to faulty conclusions about how we should live as a holy nation. And I'm not talking about America, the holy nation. I'm talking about we, the church, believers in Jesus Christ, as a holy nation. And what is our civic and political responsibilities as believers in Jesus Christ. And there are two key words in Peter's first letter that set this essential context, that we need to understand this biblical context for the truths that he conveys in this portion of Scripture. And the two words are suffering and submission. Suffering and submission. How we are to live as Christians in this world and in our communities and in our country, how we are to respond as Christians even when we are treated unfairly and receive abuse and even persecution, 
All of this has to do with suffering and submission. The, the key, the, the theme to our study in First, First Peter is maintaining hope in shaky times. And uh, maintaining our hope during times of trial and testing has to do with suffering and submission. Maintaining our hope in an unfair world when we're treated unfairly begins with an understanding, a biblical understanding of suffering and submission. Without understanding what Peter tells us about suffering and submission, we will lose our hope in an ever-increasing, darkening world. We will lose our joy in serving Christ. We will lose our perspective and we will fail to live as Christ would have us to live. We will even lose our testimony and witness, because that's why Peter is telling his readers these things. And most of all, according to Peter, with the wrong understanding, we will lose our influence as the holy nation of God in, a, in our world. Now, we're going to have to wait until next week to talk about submission. So if you're saying, oh boy, the pastor is going to explain this morning what it means to submit to the government, that we'll start on that one next Sunday. But uh, Peter talks a lot about our suffering. Turn to, to Peter's first letter, chapter 2, the second chapter of 1 Peter again, page 1477 in the, the Bible's in the rack. Begin in chapter 2, and if you write in your Bible, I hope you do so this morning, even if you're using the Bible that's in the rack, go ahead and write in it, because things that you put in that Bible, you note, uh, they might tend to be a blessing for somebody else later. And in verse 18, Peter talks about submission. And we'll trace that next week. But then in verse 19, he talks about how submission finds favor with God. And then look at verse 19. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering. Circle that word suffering. Circle the word suffering. What kind of suffering? Unjust suffering. That's what we've been talking about. And then verse 20. For what credit is there? If when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience, but if, you, if when you do what is right and suffer for it, circle suffering, patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Verse 21, for you have been called to this purpose. What purpose? Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Verse 23, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. Go over to chapter 3, verse 14, the third chapter, verse 14. Verse 14, the third chapter, but even if you should suffer, for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. Go down to verse 17. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. Keep suffering, or circling the suffering, or suffering the circling, if you'd rather do that. But wait, there's more, just like on the ads. Uh, ch chapter 4, verse 13. Oh, actually, verse 1. I almost missed one that has the word suffer in there. Fourth chapter, verse, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Jump down to verse 13 of the, the fourth chapter. 
But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. Uh, verse 15 of that fourth chapter. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or, evil, or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glory God, glorify God in his name. We're not done yet. Verse 19. About this time you're going, oy vey, why did the pastor ever choose this passage of scripture this morning? Verse 19. Therefore, there are also, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. And then just a couple more, jump down to verse 9 of chapter 5. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by our brethren who are in the world. Then verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Okay, we, we see the point. <laughs> we start to feel the impact of the point. What is the point? What I want us to understand this morning as it relates to our suffering as a Christian is how persecution and unjust suffering, being treated unfairly as believers in Jesus Christ, permanently shaped Christian political ideas. Our ideas that are biblical and scriptural is when it comes to politics, when it comes to governments, when it comes to all that stuff that's going on in our country right now, was shaped in the crucible of suffering. To understand it, we need to put it back into that so we understand the principles that God's word gives us. When it comes to political thought and ideas, they are born out of the, as Christians, they're born out of the suffering of the church. And it's born out of our response to a state or to a country. It's born out of, of suffering. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 again. We keep coming back to that word to submit, but we're not going to get to it. Because here we get the historical context in all of this. Verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king or as one in authority. Uh, jump down to verse 17, honor all people, love the neighborhood, fear God, honor the king. The first question we always ask in biblical interpretation who is that talking about? Who is the king? Who was the king or the emperor when Peter wrote these words? Is he just talking about good kings or righteous kings or kings that uh, treat us fairly? To whom was Peter referring to in the historical context? And we know it's none other than Nero, the emperor of Rome. The Roman Empire throughout which the readers of Peter's letter were scattered all over the empire it was not a benevolent monarchy. It was a dictatorship ruled by the insane demagogue Nero, who was especially notorious for his wickedness and his cruelty to Christians. Many of the believers who received Peter's letter had suffered persecution. The bodies of their friends and loved ones 
had bloodied the sand of the Roman Colosseum. Their corpses soaked in oil had lit the vast stadium. So it was altogether natural and fitting that Peter would address the subject of unfair treatment. These believers had been the target of the grossest kinds of mistreatment by government possible, by their fellow citizens, by their neighbors. In fact, not long after Peter wrote his second letter, he himself was crucified by Nero upside down. And yet even in the face of this great persecution, Peter encouraged his readers to stand firm in their hope in Christ, knowing that their faith was being purified by suffering and would bring great honor and great glory to God. And he commanded the church of Jesus Christ to submit to the kings and the governors, submit to this horrible tyrant. Now, if that raises a lot of questions in your mind, good. That means you're thinking. But we're not going to get to submission till next week. This sounds like an infomercial. You know, <laughs> you know, news at 11. But we are going to need to keep thinking about these things, and that'll be good for you to think about. And I don't want to be cumbersome or unnecessarily oppressive in this, but it's so important to understand as believers today, believers in Christ, how we are to approach politics today. The earliest and most fundamental influence on Christian political thought was this experience of persecution in the first three centuries of Christianity. The books of the New Testament mention politics almost exclusively in connection with persecution. In the Gospels, in the four Gospels, we see Jesus responding to the Roman persecution of the Jews. In the book of Acts and the apostolic epistles, the letters by Peter and Paul and and John, we find the apostles responding to the persecution of Christians. Both Jews and Christians were oppressed by Rome during this period for their refusal to acknowledge the divinity of the emperor, that he was God. Now, Rome's persecution of Judaism was much more urgent to the Roman government because Judaism had political as well as religious uh, conflict with, with Rome. And, of course, we know how that political conflict with Rome ended. It was the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D. as the Romans finally just got fed up with the Jews and their political desires and just crushed them. So Rome's conflict with Christianity was, was, was not as urgent then. It became urgent later, but its conflict with Christianity was strictly religious. It was strictly religious. But when religious suppression for Christians became a priority for Rome, it was no less severe than it was against the Jews. Turn over to the book of Revelation for a moment. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. I want to point out one verse and make some comments about it. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. And the resurrected Jesus Christ is instructing John the Apostle to convey messages to seven local churches in Asia Minor. And one of those churches was the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was an important trade center of the region. It just had that perfect location where all the trade routes came through, through Smyrna. And Christ's message for the Christians in Smyrna was a warning. It was a warning that they were going to face severe persecution. Uh, verse 10, he says to the believers at Smyrna, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to cast some of you into prison 
so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. We're not going to get into with the 10 days, but it was a period of time. They're going to have tribulation. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Believers in Smyrna, you're going to have tribulation. In about A.D. 155, 155 years after the birth of Christ or so, an 86-year-old man was dragged into the arena at Smyrna at this town. He was dragged before an angry mob. His name was Polycarp. He was the bishop of the church at Smyrna, and he was one of the most important Christian leaders alive at the time. Polycarp had been discipled by John the Apostle, and Polycarp was seen as the last living connection to any of the apostles, and so he was a faithful, godly man who was entrusted with much of the truth of Scripture. How should we interpret this? Well, this is what John said. This is what I've been taught. And so he was a very important remaining link to the apostles. And as Polycarp stood in the arena at Smyrna and ignored the jeers of the crowd, the Roman proconsul warned him that he would be executed if he did not repudiate Jesus Christ. And if he did not make a sacrifice to the emperor who was considered a god. Now under Roman law, this shows you how twisted the government can get. Under Roman law, Christianity was considered a form of atheism. Why is that? Because there's many gods you can accept and, and believe in any god you want to as long as you also believe the emperor, Caesar, is, is God. Now, since Christians don't believe in many gods and they don't believe in Caesar particularly being a god, they were considered by law to be atheist. So the standard formula for repudiating Christianity in court was to say, away with the atheist, which meant the same thing, away with Christianity away with Christ. And the crowd was clamoring. They demanded Polycarp's death. But the proconsul was reluctant to execute a man whose advanced age and ought to entitle him to some measure of respect. And so he repeatedly implored Polycarp to say the required phrase, away with the atheist. And Polycarp was willing to accept the challenge. He pointed to the crowd and said, away with the atheist. <laughs> and so they tied him up and they burned him alive. Now here's the rub. We have two great institutions that are often at odds against each other. There's the church of Jesus Christ. And then there's the state or whatever we want to call the institution of human government. And to get at the heart of the conflict that's been raging for over 2,000 years in Christianity and hundreds of years more in, in Judaism, and ask why would a state persecute Christians, we need to understand something of the nature of the church, and we need to understand something of the nature of the state. Christianity's unique conception of the relationship between religious and political institutions begins with a, its unique conception of what its religious institution is. Now, let me explain that. Because Christianity is different in this regard from any other religion. Any other religion. When responding to the claim that is made today, well, all religions are, are equal. They should have equal validity. We must remember one thing. We're going to be tolerant of one another. We must recognize that all religions are equal in this respect. But Christianity is the only major religion with the claim 
that the founder is indeed God, is indeed God. Christianity alone that its founder, Jesus Christ, is God of very God, come in the flesh to redeem mankind, who ascended to the right hand of the Father where he makes intercession for us and sent his Holy Spirit to live in us. C.S. Lewis writes of this, there's no parallel in any other religions. If you had gone to Buddha and asked, are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, my son, you are still in the veil of illusion. If you had gone to Socrates and asked, are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. If you had gone to Muhammad and asked, are you Allah? He would first rent his clothes and then cut your head off. That was 70 years ago or so when C.S. Lewis recognized that. If you had asked Confucius, are you heaven? I think he would probably have replied, remarks which are not in accordance with nature are in bad taste. Christianity alone recognizes that Jesus Christ, the founder of our church, is the living God who died on the cross for our sins. And people today in our culture, and according to civil laws, they speak of churches, synagogues, mosques, and other religious institutions as though they're all the same kind of thing. That's the way culture approaches it. And this is true on a spiritual or a superficial level, but, not, but only on a superficial level. Between the teachings of Christianity and the teachings of other religions, they're all similar because they're all religious teachings. They fall under the category of religious teachings. But just as Christianity's beliefs about its founder are fundamentally different, from other religions and their founders, Christianity's view of the church, its institution, is fundamentally different from anything else found in other religions. Christianity claims that the church is more than a social organization. It's more than a social organization in which people with similar beliefs engage in religious activities. It often claims that the church is more than a sacred institution created by God. It is true that we are a social institution, that we have similar beliefs, we socialize with one another and we do things. It is true that we claim that God instituted our, our institution. Instituted our institution, I'll think about that one. But uh, Christians would all surely agree that we fit these descriptions but this claim alone would not make the church or the Christian understanding any different than other religious understandings. What sets the Christian idea of the church apart from every other religious institution is that the church, we the church, are the temple of the living God. The church is the habitation of God on earth. For Christians, the church does not exist simply to engage in certain activities, to, to impose certain rules, to provide certain services, nor is it merely a conduit through which believers can commune with God while they are separated from God in this world. As the church, unlike any other religion, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, you are the temple of the living God. You are no longer strangers and aliens, he wrote to the church in Ephesus, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Build on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. No other religion believes that, and no other major religion would 
say that or can say that. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. These two distinct truths, the divinity of Jesus Christ, that he is God, and the nature of the church is the temple of the living God, that exclusivity, that we are a holy nation. We are God's chosen. That distinguishes us from every other religion in the world. No other religion can make those claims. And that's why we can end up living in a land that upholds religious tolerance as an ideal and why Christianity becomes the only religion that is not tolerated. It's because of our exclusiveness. We see it on TV all the time. I used to watch Larry King once in a while and see this, and we still see it today. How can you say as a Christian, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell? That's the way they, they were. They're hitting right of our exclusivity. How can you say that your church is the only one that believes and knows the truth? See how they hit at the exclusivity? Because when, if they have to admit we're right, then they are, are wrong. And that's why almost every other religion in the world persecutes Christians. It's for religious reasons. And that's why a government will also persecute Christians and tolerate almost any other religions. And so having seen the nature of the church, who we are in Christ, now we come to the nature of the state, the nature of government. This is where it gets a little heavy, but it's, it's important to understand at least some of this right now. The reason that a government will tolerate many other religions and not tolerate Christianity is because the nature of the other religions is not in fundamental conflict with the nature of the state. You know, Pastor, what do you mean by that? You lost me. You know, I said in a church one time, you know, if it's going over your head, just go like this, you know. The next Sunday, there were several people in the back row just go like that the whole sermon. <laughs> it's hard to keep a straight face when you're going like that. Here it is. In a spiritual sense... Every other religion is no more than a human institution. Did you hear that? When it comes to their false gods, Psalm 135 says there's no there there. There's no God there. There's no eternity there. There's no heaven there. There's no deity. It's all founded by a man. They all have a human founder. It's a human institution, and it operates like a human institution. And human institutions that operate like human institutions, when they get along with other human institutions that operate like human institutions, they get along fine. And they only get conflict when they no longer agree on, on certain things. And so when the government, what is a human institution, agrees with the particular re religion that's a human institution, then there's no fundamental conflict in, in all of that. And it's no different in today countries today where the government is dominated by a particular religion, whether it's Hinduism in, in India, where Christians face persecution, or it's uh, Islam in the Muslim countries where Christians face persecution, and we can go on and on down the list. As long as the state is dominated by the religion, there is no fundamental conflict. But uh, when the state feels like it is being threatened by a religion, then that is where the, the conflict comes in. You know, one of the ironies of recent history and I'm going to call it an irony to begin with, is because, and I'm going to explain something else here in a little bit that shows how we approach politics as Christians, just to keep your, your thinking caps on for another week or so. One of the ironies of recent history is that Christianity in the Middle East until recently 
enjoyed religious freedom. There were over a million and a half Christians of Assyrian descent in Iraq before our government invaded Iraq. And now even CNN says that uh, Christianity in the Middle East is just a shadow of what it, it used to be. I, I don't think we have any concept of the millions of people who have died and then suffered. Uh, and so under evil dictatorships, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, Christianity had freedom. Under Bashar al-Assad in Syria, Christianity had freedom. Under Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, Christianity had freedom. Christians could worship and serve as long as they didn't cross certain boundaries. Uh, under President Mubarak in Egypt, the Coptic Church. We had the Coptic Church in, in, uh, in, in Egypt. We had the Assyrian Church in Iraq. Both of them traced their roots to Pentecost. To Pentecost. And somebody said not too long ago, for the first time in 2,000 years, there was no longer Christian worship service in Nineveh. In Nineveh. And they... You know, these dictators, they didn't see Christianity as a threat at all because they were secular dictators. It, yeah, they were Muslim by religion, but they were secular dictators, and they never perceived Christianity as a threat to their government because for 2,000 years, the Christians had been practicing their faith and their duty to the Word of God to submit to the rulers in those places. And God, for that time, gave them a certain level of protection. It wasn't until their regimes began to topple that now all the churches in Afghanistan have been burned. Most of the churches in Iraq have been burned. They're burning, they've been burning churches in, in, in Egypt, in Libya, all of those, all those places. You know, and the thing that we need to understand is that when we understand the biblical principles, we know what our response should be spiritually as well as should be politically. Uh, in 2003, when we were invading Iraq, and uh, we were beginning that war and those kind of things, uh, Insight for Living started posting daily devotionals on how we can pray uh, on, on the website. And they asked me to write two of those devotionals. And on both of those, I spoke to the need to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in Iraq because... I could see the writing on the wall. And I said, what we really need to pray for is that they will not find themselves under a Muslim-dominated government or a government that will no longer grant them their religious freedoms. And I even wrote an op-ed piece in Christian journalism class that we sent to the Dallas Morning News. And there were people sitting next to me in the classroom that said, oh, don't write that because that, that will reflect on President Bush. Of course, he's pretty popular in Texas because that's where he's from. <laughs> you know. And so they were approaching it strictly from a political, and I was saying, no, we need to understand the religious and spiritual implications of this. If we go in and destroy the person who's defending their freedoms, what? And then... How many years later? 12 years later? 13 years later? Not that I'm a prophet, <laughs> but I did. You know, when we understand these things and know how to approach it religiously. Well, next week, we will start talking about what it means to, to submit to the government and how God will both bless and, and honor us 
and make us influential. Even in this political circus. <laughs> if we can find some answers on how to think about these things at this time of year, well, we're doing pretty well. So let's, let's close in prayer. Father, it's not a happy subject. It's not a subject we like to talk about or, or consider that of suffering, and particularly when we suffer unjustly. When we suffer at the hands of, of a government or at the hands of, uh, of other people who claim to be religious, Father, but uh, we know that uh, your purposes are greater than our purposes. Your ways are higher than our ways. And we also know that from, from your word, through Peter and through Paul in the book of Romans and uh, through Paul as he wrote to Timothy, you have given us the way that we can really influence the people around us for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we can live a quiet and peaceful life and worship you and serve you and serve each other and, and others, Lord, in a, in a way that uh, even our Iraqi and uh, Christian brothers and sisters and others, Lord, over the centuries have, have done. But we also know, as we even saw in the song this morning, that the closer we get to the time of the end, the nations are going to rage. The nations will rage. And I, I also believe, Father, we are living in that time of the rage of the nations, and they're going to take their rage out on those who follow Jesus Christ. And we've seen so many examples of that already. Father, we thank you that we are your people. We are your church. We are your holy nation. We are a royal priesthood. We are chosen by you, Lord, and that uh, our citizenship is in heaven to which we look forward. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.